Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. As always, this is your host, Brian, and thanks again for joining me. Today's episode is B is for Being Human in a Time of Technological Upgrades. As always, in probably the craziest year ever to decide to finally launch a podcast, current events are providing plenty of fodder to chew on and, quite honestly, can make it hard to pick a topic to focus on. It's like that thing they say about a football team, when a coach has two good quarterbacks, but to play the game, you only need one. In this case, it's more like I have thousands of great quarterbacks, but only one podcast for the quarterback to play on, and only one me to coach the game. It's a good problem to have, but still. That said, today's topic ties into the chapters from my novel, which you'll hear today, and it's a topic that is really near and dear to me, which is this. As humanity continues to evolve, can we evolve and remain connected to our organic nature and more to the natural world around us? It was inspired by listening to a recent episode of the Astrology Hub podcast titled What It Means to Stay Human Through These Times, which I've linked in the show notes. The episode kicks off with some very interesting etymology, which nicely ties into this topic and also gives you a hint about why I'm finding myself so easily at home diving into the very deep world of astrology. It really is not what you think, folks. And well, that very fact that our modern culture has drifted so far afield from its roots is one of the main reasons 2020 finds us where we are at as a species. After the main Riverside ramble, I touch on one of the more influential and increasingly controversial figures of our time. Elon Musk. Last, as always, two more chapters of The Teacher and the Tree Man. We're in the home stretch, folks, book four of four, and things are really starting to come to a head for our beloved teacher and his tree man pal. Now, before we close out, I've got some news. I've created a Patreon page where you can support my work. The link is in the show notes. I'll be putting out some content on that page for patrons only soon. And I'd ask that you consider coming over and joining what I hope will become a vibrant community. There will be some bonus podcasts where you get to hear what I really think, as well as some creative writing, poetry, and essays. And a monthly internet chat with me, as well as an Ask Me Anything, an AMA. Now, this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg for what I want to do, but I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it. Now it's time to take it to the next level, and so the Patreon page. I'll be making further announcements as things progress. Okay, thanks again for listening and enjoy the show. But we're going to be in this quote-unquote crisis, quote-unquote disaster for a while, as far as if we're if astrology has anything to say. The word disaster is a good word, and you know, you probably know that its origins mean without a star. I just learned that from her. So she says that in the book, yeah. this, and then astro, astro is and from astro. astro. And astro is astro, astrology. Without a star. Exactly. Yeah. And yes. so basically, uh, it, it, the word disaster really means to be disconnected from the natural order of things. And the Greek word for the natural order of things, which also means beauty, is the word cosmo. And so, cos- so it, when you're not connected with the cosmos, that is disaster. Okay, that was host of the Astrology Hub podcast, Amanda Walsh, talking to a recent favorite of mine, Rick Levine, 
and Amanda was talking about a book that she has been reading titled A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. This is a book I've been meaning to read for a few years now since hearing about it on Chris Ryan's excellent Tangentially Speaking podcast. Here's the product description on Amazon. Why is it that in the aftermath of a disaster, whether man-made or natural, people suddenly become altruistic, resourceful, and brave? What makes the newfound communities and purpose many find in the ruins and crisis after disaster so joyous? And what does this crisis reveal about ordinarily unmet social desires and possibilities? In A Paradise Built in Hell, award-winning author Rebecca Solnit explores these phenomena, looking at major calamities from the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco through the 1917 explosion that tore up Halifax, Nova Scotia, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, 9-11, and Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. She examines how disaster throws people into a temporary utopia of changed states of mind and social possibilities, as well as looking at the cost of the widespread myths and rarer real cases of social deterioration during crisis. And as Amanda Walsh was saying on the Astrology Hub podcast, the book challenges our ideas about human nature. And we often think that when things are going to go bad, people are going to get even worse. What if that's not true? I'll speak real quickly just to the experience I had here in Japan in 2011 after the big earthquake here. Now, my local area wasn't so damaged. However, there was a real sense of community across Japan, and there were many heartwarming stories about people doing things that, well, you just wouldn't expect if you really thought human nature was at its core bad and selfish. Okay, on to the main talk of today's podcast. What is our intent? What is the intent of the technology that we use? What is the intent we put into it? Very important question. As we become more technological, whether we like it or not, as a culture, as a civilization, that question is of the utmost importance because we can easily go in a direction of technology that's disconnected from the organic. And while there are those who wish to live forever, who would say this is a good thing, from my perspective, it is not. Because the more disconnected we become from the organic, that is our very human nature, because we are organic creatures, the more disconnected we will be from the organic that is around us, that is all life on earth. And the more we will create a living environment that doesn't support life. I'm riding my bike here. A beautiful first day of May, May Day. May Day, May Day. I've got some people ahead of me that I'm going to have to somehow navigate around, which I've failed to do. And there's some barking dogs. Speaking of organic. Now, I have a choice now. I could go down to the river, finish this up, which is right here. I think I'll do that. Okay, I'm at the river now. Can you hear it? 
think you probably can. So, before I get too far into that, let me just say there is also, with everything there's an upside and a downside, and a world teemed with organic life could have a downside. For example, on my walk down here, now that it's getting to be more spring and more things are starting to come out, more life is starting to show up, these little gnats were bugging around my ears, and it's not the first time it's happened today. I was thinking to myself, a few weeks ago, the temperature wasn't quite as warm, but there weren't any gnats. And then I thought too, back to yesterday when I was eating my nice picnic in the spot where I thought about throwing a tent, I heard a rather loud noise in the bushes down the hill. Not too far from me, but far enough that it didn't put me in any danger, but I could tell it was a reasonably large creature. And then I saw something moving, and then it went under these other bushes, and I was like, it looked like the size of a beaver, or a cat or something, but looked fatter than a cat. And then it came back a few, minute, a few minutes later. I was watching for it, but then I heard it again, and this time I got a picture of it. And uh, it was the Japanese raccoon dog, the tanuki, because I saw its face really clearly. The picture I got doesn't show it so well, but... I took the picture. So I took a few pictures, but the one, the best one I got was maybe a second or two after he gave me a look right in my face, and I could see his face. And then when I looked up on the internet, Tonaki, it's like, oh, that's definitely what it was. And now I don't. I read a bit about. I read their Wikipedia entry, and you know, there's a lot of them around, and I don't think there. I could put my tent up there. There wouldn't be any danger, but. The point is, if I was out in, in the wild somewhere camping and there were saber-toothed tigers around, well, then I'd prefer a cave. So we can see we're having a world, as far as our own survival goes, a world that's too teeming with life. And I'll go camping in the jungle, a little bit different than camping where there's not much life around. So just pointing that out. But... As far as our own human beingness, we are organic, and yet we are in an era where there's talk of us becoming more merging with our machines. The whole idea of, um, sorry, transhumanism, and I think that's been kicking that's been this progress some have made the case that that's what we've been building toward the whole time and this is clearly a dichotomy going on in our culture this and what i call it i've referred to it this way as culture with a capital c and nature and I see that as this, what I'm talking about is the inorganic, this disconnected from nature side of uh, modern culture and nature. Um, and so we can build that culture. Our technology can definitely drive us in that direction. And one of the reasons I've, one of my, my main focus of pushback against some of the um, rules or suggestions or recommendations 
by people who are looking out for our health, apparently, you know, the medical system and uh, I don't necessarily, well, governments, and they all claim this is all for our health and safety. Um, I was going to say I don't necessarily believe that governments are looking out for the health of the average person. Uh, I think one way I think is a pretty clear example of how even in this time, that's not really the case. Uh, why are, you know, this is, I'm going to talk from what I've read about in America, but I'll just use Japan. Like, why is, you know, only buy essentials and things? And now Japan hasn't cracked down to the degree that America has, but alcohol sales, now I'm sitting here having a drink this afternoon, so I don't want them to restrict the sale of alcohol, but I'm just pointing out that um, alcohol sales in the U.S., gun sales are way up, and you know, so. Yet, meanwhile, they've restricted, and this is the one that I've heard people mention, some of my friends who actually work in this industry, uh, yoga studios and um, what homeopathic healthcare, you know, um, these things have been just deemed non-essential. But meanwhile, gun shops are still essential. So, you know, and that's 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 doesn't matter, red or blue, government doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, and I would argue that that's because. A, on the more shallow level, I don't think the governments really have as much concern for the average person as they claim. And B, on the deeper level, I think that's because they're serving culture more than they are nature. Um, and I followed many different threads throughout my years, up to my tender old age of 47. And one of the threads I followed pretty closely since the, I won't say pretty closely, but close enough that I know quite a bit about it, or enough about it to tell you to talk about it, that uh, is the alternative health versus the mainstream the healthcare system, you know? And I've heard people refer to the U.S. healthcare system as the sick care system. And what they mean by that and what I would mean by that is that it's not really trying to promote lasting health. Uh, you know, I mean, there's so many ways. I, could, I was just trying to think, where could I go with this to exemplify it? But um, it's quality. It's quantity over quality. Quantity over quality. So at the end of your life, you know, someone's dying, yet our culture has this fear of death. I'm like, we can go. We can go really. We're going down deep now. This fear of, you know, dying, death, we don't want to die, so our our medical system, and I think, again, this is like, the U.S. is kind of the peak example of this, and I speak from this not so much from personal experience, but just from reading about it and, you know, other people's experiences, um, so I would welcome any sort of feedback, giving me more direction in my understanding of this, but, you know, people talking about how their dying father wanted to die, but the doctors and the healthcare, he was in the system and they were like trying to keep him alive. And, you know, um, it's not a natural way to go. And we keep, and yet we keep people going as long as we can. And, you know, there's much of the culture really is not about quality of life. And, there's also a financial incentive for the hospitals and things in the mainstream medical system to uh, 
resist or oppose alternative healthcare because a lot of alternative healthcare is about preventative healthcare. So rather than, for example, you've got someone with a condition and you can give them a medication. Let's let's go with an opioid crisis. I'm trying to do this in a way that. Um, I don't know if that's the best way, but anyway, you give someone a pill, you're like, hey, you need to take this pill for the rest of your, you've got this condition, take this pill for the rest of your life. Well, that's a great, a great customer, right? You can imagine any condition you want, but there's thousands of those things that, you know, psychiatrists and doctors and things prescribe, like, well, you've got this, you know, so you need, this medication will help you, it'll keep you going, make sure you keep taking it, so that's a customer, right? And I look at this sometimes from my perspective as someone who had a history in the in the drug world. And it, to me, it seems like it's the greatest, like, if you're a drug dealer, it's the greatest sin in the world when you know you've got a lifelong addict, you know? So then along comes some alternative healthcare person who says, hey, I can solve that problem. It's going to take a little bit more work up front. You know, you're going to have to do some more physical exercise or whatever more psychological work, whatever. You're going to have to do a little more work on the front end, but once we get through this after several months or whatever, how long, then you'll be cured of it. Like, the problem, you, you know, you'll be back on the road of recovery and this, this issue you have is gone. Well, for that mainstream company that has this lifelong patient slash addict... <laughs> They're not going to be too happy about that alternative healthcare, right? They're going to call it, it's fake, it's pseudoscience, it's quackery. They're going to make all these accusations to try to keep that from becoming the solution because, again, it, it bites into their profits. So if they're really, if they're really about A, if they're really about what they, sh what they say, like the whole, what's the um, Hippocratic Oath, you know, to, to help, to serve, to heal, well, then you'd be all, you'd be happy. You'd be like, oh, great. But the fact is, is that the medical system, and this is especially true in America, but I think it's true in a lot of modern cultures, but there is money involved. There is a problem. There's a living, making a profit and keeping, you know, my business is being threatened and it's competition and all this. So, um, I didn't expect this little chat to go in this direction, but that's what's fun about doing these little kind of ramble chats. Um, but, how I got on this topic when I was biking was I was listening to them talk about uh, Elon Musk and Starfleet, I believe. And the person talking about it was not so kind to Mr. Musk, and I'm kind of in the same camp with her. Uh, she was just talking about him as being a person who's not... It's a very culture i'll be back in my in my phrase and a very culture disconnected from nature kind of project that he's on you know and she was talking about how he's shooting all these rockets up into space these satellites and she's a person who studies the stars and as someone who studies the stars it's gonna maybe make it harder to see the stars and you know but just there's no sense of organic connection and what's the purpose why is he doing it now i want to look into it maybe that'll be part three i'll go home and research it um, but I've heard him talk on the Joe Rogan show. I've, you know, read enough 
not enough, but I've read enough about the guy and from the guy that I'm not really too impressed with the wavelength he's on. I, yes, he's very intelligent, obviously, and none of, there's nothing like that that I'm saying, that he's not smart. But smart people can still be on the wrong path, you know. Often that is the case. And she mentioned the word, and apologize after she said this, but it was the word I was thinking of before she said it, which is hubris, you know. And I think there's a lot of that in him, and there's a lot of that in the capital C culture. This idea that we can disconnect from nature and transcend ourselves and become transhuman. And I believe one of Musk's goals is to get off the earth. And maybe that's his purpose. Maybe we want part of our humanity to do that. You know, like I'm not really here to limit what he does. Um, I'm more raising questions about our culture as a whole. That's the purpose of this little chat. And how do we want to use our technology? And this ties back into my 20, I think I, I did talk about this in podcast maybe four or five weeks ago, four weeks ago, anyway, around podcast in the 20s, because we're just around 30 today, I think it was like 24, 25, the one I talked about internet being water, uh, about my understanding of how I can use the internet, I can use social media to love or to hate, and I chose love. And I think that's the gist of this for me, is that I'm very much a person who's connected to the earth and who's connected to kind of the basic things in our humanity, like, you know, just singing, dancing, eating, chatting, relating to each other, you know, and sitting out on the beach with a campfire going, the guy's got a guitar, I mean, just a simple shit, you know, like, I don't really need stuff to be all that complicated, yet at the same time, so this is how we have to balance all this stuff, at the same time, I do love a lot of the things about the technology, so like right now I could record this on this little device that goes in my bag, Put it onto another device, so I don't even have to do that. I could use this device right now and upload what I'm saying straight into the world, into the universe as a podcast. I've got this the, using the Anchor app, Anchor Anchor.fm, I believe it's called, but on yeah, their their program, my my podcast so free host, great host, a little advertising for them. But they've got the app. I could just press the button here, send this file over to there and send it out there. And there isn't even a way to go on the app and just record it directly, but I'm not intending to do that. Um, anyway, point is, it's a balance. So we don't want to go too far one way or the other. You know, we go too far into the organic and the nature, and all of a sudden we lose, you know, this ability to connect people around the world, and the next thing we know it, the gnats are getting bigger and the saber-toothed tigers are eating us, you know? So I don't want to go that direction, but I also don't want to go in the direction of becoming more and more robot-like, robot-like, that sounded weird how I pronounce that, robot-like, robot, Robert Sensei, um, more and more like a robot, and have our nature become more and more polluted and dead, and feeling less and less connection to each other, more and more cold, rational, pure analysis 
<laughs> right? It's a balance. It's about the balance. And I believe that, you know, when I when I talk culture and nature, I don't I'm not trying to I'm, I'm what I'm getting at is I don't want to try to I'm not trying to set it up as one. We need both. We need both. We need our human culture to re, retain its connection to nature. And we need our nature to have be able to express our culture. You know, that's where we're getting at with this. So that's the that's the world. I, I want to help do my part to manifest. And I think a lot of the things we're seeing online right now, um, a lot of the reasons social media has been so divisive over the years is because people are using it more from that, that rational, you know, and I'm going to use archetypal language here, but the masculine, rational, you know, cold, head-based disconnected from another person putting yourself out there here's what i think you know and then like you're not even thinking about the fact that someone out there is reading this and it can hurt them or maybe you are and you want to hurt them um and so like right now in the past few months we've seen all these you know people just fighting over their opinions about what's going on and you know really digging in on their ideas and that's why I've been doing a lot of my posts from the perspective of, hey guys, I love you. Here's what I think. You know, like, and then I'm like, at the end, I'm like, and remember, I love you. You know, like, and I get made fun of by some people for that, but it's like, that's really what's important, in my opinion, is the, the love, you know? The thoughts and the ideas we have to work out, but if we don't do it from that place of love, then I don't know. I'm not, I'm not here to, I'm not here to win a freaking debate and squish you under my foot with my big ass mouth you know i'm here to have all of us rise up together to overtake the imbeciles who try to rule our culture all right i'm gonna finish this up i said i was gonna do this for 20 minutes and that's 18 so good enough and when i go home i'm going to look up mr musk and starfleet elon musk starfleet and that'll be part three all right Okay, I just read a little bit about Elon Musk and his Starlink launches. Apparently they have launched 420 of these satellites. Yes, that's right, 420 already. And they're going to be launching more this week, later this week, May 7th. And you can see them. There's a website, findstarlink.com. If you want to look from, to see if it's visible from your area, I clicked on it. Apparently not so visible from here in the next several days, but um, they're going to launch 60 more Yeah, later this week, and they plan to launch more than 1,500 satellites, and the whole purpose is to provide near global internet service by late 2021 or 2022. Oh, I'm sorry. They've been granted regulatory approval from the Federal Communications Commission to deploy up to 12,000 satellites in orbit of Earth. And this has caused quite a bit of criticism from some experts. Here's a quote from Starlink is a crime against humanity. It robs us of the skies of our ancestors to every corner of the Earth. Travis Longcorn, a light pollution expert from UCLA, Bruins Boo, wrote on Twitter in March. Haha. <laughs> 
And another study from some scientists from the European Southern Observatory came to the conclusion that mega-satellite constellations being developed by SpaceX and other companies could have a significant impact on some astronomical observations, such as wide-field surveys conducted with large telescopes. Uh, satellites used to be a minor nuisance, said Oliver Hanoi, one of the authors of the research, previously told uh, Newsweek. They were few. So a satellite crossing our field of view was rare. As their number increases, satellites will become a component of light pollution, just like streetlights. We have been able to escape light pollution by setting our telescopes in the middle of the desert. We won't be able to escape satellites. And people have been able to see these, and Elon Musk said something about they're working on, I guess it's been reflecting off the sun, and he's, they've got some sort of panels that he referred to as like a a shade screen on a car that they think is going to help some. But yeah, so it's a bit of a controversy and Musk was saying that, you know, this is going to be good for um, America now and also, you know, in the race with China and Russia, you know, so there's, it's kind of the typical story that we get. And, but Musk is in the news for something else today. Uh, he got, he tweeted and commented about Brands lockdown measures as fascist and says free America now. Actually, this is a couple days ago, a couple Thursday. Um, he's anyway. He's kind of putting himself into that argument, and he says, "Let's see what he said here." He said in a conference call to say that people cannot leave their house and they will be arrested if they do. This is fascist. This is not democratic. This is not freedom. Give people back their goddamn freedom. So the extension of the shelter in place, or frankly, I would call it forcibly imprisoning people in their homes against all their constitutional rights, in my opinion, breaking people's freedoms in ways that are horrible and wrong and not why people came to America or built this country. It will cause great harm, not just to Tesla, but to any companies. And while Tesla will weather the storm, there are many small companies that will not. Um, and I, you know, um, and, and then he tweeted, free America now in all caps. And a woman, the article here, this is from the Express in England. This says, obviously, Mr. Musk's tweets were slated by medical experts with one medical experts. I'm actually reading that verbatim. With one medical experts. Uh, good job with your copy editing, but such is life in the world of getting the news out too fast. Uh, Eugene Gu, MD, responding on Twitter with basic facts. This is what the, the Dr. Gu said. I'm not here to cancel or bully you. I just want to inform you and your audience why I believe stay-at-home orders are the right thing to do for the coronavirus pandemic. On April 16th, around 5,000 people died from COVID-19. Extrapolating that for years, 1.8 million. Most of those deaths were from NYC. If this was nationwide without a lockdown, it would be much higher than 5K a day. But even if it stayed at that number, 1.8 million dwarfs, heart disease, 647,000, and cancer, 609,000, which are the number one and two causes of death in the U.S. Um, I'm not going to make any, you know, my own comments. I've made enough over the time. But anyway, there's Elon Musk, Starfleet. Um, as it gets back to the topic, uh, I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk's. I Again, I think he's... You know, he's doing his thing, but and I don't want to stop him from putting satellites up, but I do have concerns about some of these things. That It's interesting how 
he's actually getting on the, you know, scientists are getting a little upset with him, astronomers, and the people that I was listening to on this topic were was from the astrologers, but basically people who look at the stars are saying this might not be the best thing. So, and I do think that there's a lot of kind of, well, hubris in his perspective, and, oh, it's, uh, it's interesting, but that's that. This wasn't quite as focused as my last talks, but let's just leave it there. And uh, next up, you're going to hear book four, Teacher and the Tree Man, book four. This is the last, folks. We've got 20 chapters to go. If you've been listening so far, you know where the story's been going. And uh, book four is going to get into, well, it's a little bit connected to the topic that I covered today, um, especially uh, chapter two. I think you'll hear it, uh, the topic of nature and culture um, so that's why i chose to talk about this today uh, chapter one i believe in book four is the shortest of the chapters in the book um, it's like six minutes long so okay enjoy book four chapters one and two and until next time thanks again for listening book four chapter one the first draft of history did you read it already? Lucas asked Sylvanus as he rubbed the sleep out of his eyes and entered the living room. Of course, Sylvanus said. Took a bike ride downtown and found a copy. And? Another solid article, Sylvanus said. He was good to us. What did he write? He called it The Mysterious Identity of Luke Green, and it's mostly a nice summary of my history, Sylvanus said. Talks about how I wasn't born in 1970, but in 1920 and how I lived in the forest for several years before you got me out, and the forest was destroyed. Does he say how I got you out? Lucas asked. No, Sylvanus said. He kept his word to us. Didn't mention the mushrooms or the 5-MEO. You should read it yourself before the press conference, Sylvanus said. But I want to read you the conclusion now, if that's all right. Sure, Lucas said. Just let me get some breakfast and coffee ready, and you can read it to me as I eat. Ten minutes later, as Lucas drank a large cup of coffee and munched down toast and some of his scrambled eggs, Sylvanus began. Too often our culture convinces us we must make a choice between one extreme or the other. Thus, in the case of this tale, we make the mistake of choosing to believe all of it or none of it. To believe all of it stretches what we can accept as within the possibilities of reality. To believe none of it shows a serious lack of trust in our fellow man especially someone of Green slash Douglas's high character. So what do we do? If we go with the either-or choice, any time the topic comes up, rather than thinking about it broadly and staying in a place of unknowing, we spend our time defending our decision. Meanwhile, we only focus on evidence that supports our choice, while ignoring evidence that calls it into question. Where this becomes even more dangerous is when we start thinking that those who choose the other side are stupid, inferior, or wrong. To delve into why our culture compels us to do this is well beyond the scope of this article, or even my knowledge. I only bring it up as a warning against where I see this story going once it gains traction in the media. Why can't we remain both skeptical and open-minded, staying humble when faced with things that challenge our worldview? Why must we make quick decisions, as though reaching a speedy conclusion is the best way to handle difficult topics? Why must we make conclusions in the first place? What's wrong with admitting, I don't know? 
I write all this because much as I like, respect, and trust Sylvanus Douglas slash Luke Green, much as I want to believe him, I cannot be sure. After all, I never did see him in that tree. That said, when I first met him, about one month after he got out of that tree, his skin was more like the bark of a tree than the skin of a man. He was so embarrassed about his appearance that he didn't want any pictures of him to run in my original article about him. In the end, I'm not sure how much it matters if I believe him or not. The only conclusion I've drawn about this story is that Douglas has an urgent message about the need for humanity to rediscover our connection to, and reverence for, nature, a message we ignore at the peril of all life on Earth. Rather than sending this story into the cultural crossfire of believe it or not, let's focus on the message and take it seriously. For if we don't, decades down the road, or sooner, we may not have the luxury to have such discussions. Instead, we may be forced into merely surviving in our destroyed environment. And mere survival is no life at all. One thing is certain. Mere survival is not the life Sylvanus Douglas dreamed about before he was liberated from his life in the tree. He's right about that conclusion, that's for sure, Sylvanus said. Sometimes I wonder something. What? If I knew as much as I do today about humanity's destruction of nature when I lived in the tree, would I have asked you to just let me die with the forest? Come on, Sylvanus, Lucas said. It's not that dire, is it? Perhaps not, Sylvanus said. Still, I can't help but wonder. Joe Edwards closed the Tacoma Times, threw it onto his desk, and said, Total horseshit. Sandy Tsu and Mike Wilson watched him, and Sandy was about to respond when Edwards continued. That weirdo Rhodes is just trying to make a name for himself, I think. Or maybe, maybe his loser friend Lucas is trying to redeem himself. And Green wants more than his 15 minutes in the spotlight. Anybody going to tell me I'm wrong? Sue saw Wilson was about to say something, so she decided to step in and save him. I'm not willing to say that, Joe, but I'm also unable to say you're right. I want to go to the press conference, Wilson said. What's your theory? Edward said to Sue, ignoring Wilson. I don't have one, sir, she said. Do I need one? Come on, Sandy, humor me, Edward said, smiling at her in that way that she didn't like. I just don't know, she said. It's all so weird. I agree with Rhodes, Wilson said. It's silly to rush to a conclusion about this. Figures, Edward said. Regardless of what we think, Sue said, we have to send Mike to the press conference. Yes, I suppose you're right, Edward said. Okay, if we are going to send you all the way out there, there is one big hole in Rhodes's account that you need to ask Green about. Anybody know what it is? Sue hated it when Edwards did this. This wasn't journalism school, and she wasn't his student. She had a pretty good idea what question he wanted asked, but she refused to play the game. Wilson, however, spoke up. Just how did Lucas break Douglas out of the tree? An A for the day, Edward said, leaning back in his chair and putting his feet on his desk. Just don't forget to ask it. Chapter 2. Meet the Press after dropping Scarlet off at a friend's house for the day, Lucas and Sylvanus spent that Thursday morning preparing for the press conference. On Wednesday evening, Lucas had arranged with mall management to take advantage of the nice spring weather by holding the press conference outside the mall's back entrance, where the mall's sign would be seen behind the podium. Lucas told Sylvanus the sign would remind everyone that Sylvanus slash Luke was still a hero, regardless of how people felt about the revelations in Rhodes' story. Damage control, he said. 
The thought hadn't occurred to Sylvanus, so he again counted his blessings that he had Lucas on his side. Yet the tree man didn't agree with Lucas about everything. Two hours before the press conference, Lucas found Sylvanus sitting in the sun in the backyard, watching a breeze ruffle through the new leaves in the trees at the edge of the yard. We need to talk about what questions to expect and how to answer them, Lucas said. We do? Lucas laughed. Of course we do. It's just like the radio interview, Sylvanus. You'll be addressing the world. You don't want to blow it because you're unprepared. I just don't want to sound like I'm trying to remember lines I practiced, Sylvanus said. I want to speak from the heart. I understand, Lucas said. Still, a little practice never hurt anyone. They compromised by talking informally about what Sylvanus wanted to say, so he'd have the gist of his message solidified in his mind. Lucas eased Sylvanus's worries about whether the press conference would be adversarial, saying that if they did, the press would look looking like jerks for going after the hero of the moment. Still, Lucas said he expected some tough questions, so Sylvanus accepted Lucas's offer to have Lucas on the stage with him if he needed help answering them. After talking for 30 minutes, they felt ready to face the wolves. Lucas looked out at the 20 or so media members from the stage. He recognized some, including Rhodes and Wilson, as well as two local TV news reporters and one correspondent from CNN, but the rest were new faces to him. Good morning, everyone, Lucas began. My name is Paul Lucas, and I'll be acting as something of a media liaison for my friend, Mr. Sylvanus Douglas. Lucas went on to refer those who hadn't read Rhodes' article to the Tacoma Times website and explained that the article detailed why Lucas was now calling Luke Green Sylvanus Douglas. He said he had only one request from the media, that they refer to Luke as Sylvanus Douglas in their work. In exchange, Lucas said they would answer questions as long as they could with the goal of full disclosure because Sylvanus was tired of keeping his story secret. Now, Lucas concluded, I'm going to step aside and let Sylvanus do most of the talking. Thank you for your time. Before Lucas had moved an inch, the questions started coming so quickly and loudly that neither he nor Sylvanus could understand them. As Lucas had instructed him to do, Sylvanus pointed to an unfamiliar face, hoping to appear diplomatic and not to play favorites. Let the cards fall where they may. Mr. Gre Douglas, Mike Fallows, Los Angeles Times, Sylvanus smiled. Can you sort of briefly walk us through what happened Tuesday morning from the time you arrived until the time you apprehended Watkins? Not a total softball, Lucas thought, but a good starting point, as it would give Sylvanus a chance to fill in any missing pieces the reporters perceived in his part of the story. After answering the question, it was followed by some more softballs. How are you feeling today? Nervous, of course. Did you speak with the Walker family? Yes, and I will attend Jack's funeral tomorrow. Why did you use a baseball bat? Don't you guys have weapons? Uh, yes, we have batons, but since I was a few minutes late and the baton was in the security office, I didn't have access to it. Then, a reporter from Time Magazine asked the first difficult question of the day. Do you think if security guards at malls had guns, it could help to prevent tragedies like this? Mm, that's a hard one, Sylvanus said. As long as we live in a culture that suggests violence can sometimes be an acceptable way to solve our problems, I think these tragedies are going to happen, whether or not security guards have guns. In this case, there were no security guards in the immediate vicinity when Walkins started firing. And besides... Just because we take precautions against something doesn't mean someone out there won't take the risk of defying those precautions. Lucas was pleased. 
Sylvanus was handling himself well and seemed at relative ease. He knew this wasn't easy for the tree man, but surprisingly Sylvanus seemed like a natural at answering the questions without coming across as distant or arrogant. But then a TV reporter from the conservative cable news station Fox News asked another challenging question. Mr. Green, Sylvanus looked like he was about to correct him, so Lucas quickly scratched his neck, which was their agreed-upon sign for Sylvanus to keep quiet. Lincolnton police reported this morning that the shooter Watkins had a brother who was killed in Afghanistan last year. They said Watkins told them the reason he picked them all was he'd heard that the ACLU was suing them all and a security guard who allegedly threw out an anti-war protester for wearing a shirt opposing the war in Iraq. Do you have any reaction to this revelation? Well, Sylvanus said, first, I'm sorry to hear about his brother. However, no matter what motivation Watkins had for choosing to target innocent people, there are no excuses. None. We all have our frustrations and sorrows, but we all have a responsibility to each other in how we deal with them. More hands were raised, and Sylvanus called on a silver-haired man with an NBC News windbreaker in the front row who said, I'd like to shift gears here if I may. By all means, Sylvanus said. I want to know if you really expect us to believe that you lived in the side of a tree. Why would I make it up? Sylvanus asked. I could have just continued the lie that I was a heroic Gulf War vet, Luke Green, and you guys would have been showering me with praise. Why give that up? Seems like a pretty crazy thing to do. But it's crazy for us to believe you, isn't it? The man asked. I don't know, Sylvanus said. Really, it's up to you. I mean, I can definitely understand why people would have trouble believing me. I would too. That's why I'm making myself available for questions and answering them honestly. And while I know I'm asking people to take me at my word, I hope they can, because I'm telling the truth. Mike Wilson's hand shot up. Lucas and Sylvanus had debated beforehand whether to punish him for his past treatment by ignoring his questions, but Sylvanus wanted to give him another chance, so he pointed to him and Wilson asked, But how did you get out? The article didn't really say. Sylvanus was about to begin, when Lucas scratched his neck and then suddenly returned to the mic. Sylvanus got out with a little help from his friends, myself included. Specifics? Wilson asked. Well, when I met him, he told me he couldn't feel his body. So I worked with him to develop his focus. Starting with his toes, I convinced him to imagine them, and then imagine moving them. With dedication, he was able to move his body. Eventually, he broke his hands and feet free, and was able to chip away at some of the bark by scratching and kicking. Unfortunately, time was running out, so I had to use a hatchet to chisel out his part of the tree before bringing him home and finishing the job. Another reporter asked, Weren't you afraid you'd kill him? Sure, but they were going to cut down the forest in a few days anyway. But, said another, if they'd come out to cut it down and saw him there, surely they would have stopped. Sylvanus stepped back to the mic and said, Probably. But, to me, a fate worse than death was to all of a sudden become the center of a tourist trap. They still would have destroyed much of the forest, and I would have then spent my hours being gawked at and photographed. I take it you're no fan of zoos, said another reporter, which drew laughter. Sylvanus cringed and said, Yes, that's right. He called on a woman reporter in the second row, who asked, On the subject of photographs, I wonder if you might have any photos of yourself when you were in the tree. Uh, no, unfortunately we don't, Sylvanus said. Lucas was about to step back to the mic, 
but Sylvanus blocked him and said, Next. The questions began to peter down, and about thirty minutes after they'd started, they were finished. Lucas thanked everyone again and implored them to visit Sylvanus's blog, telling the media that was also the best way to set up an interview. In spite of Lucas's suggestion that he write out his closing statement, Sylvanus spoke without notes from the heart. He began, I want to be clear about my intentions for holding this press conference. First, in light of Mr. Rhodes's article, I knew you would all have questions, and I wanted to honor those. But why? Why does it matter what I have to say? It matters not because of me. No, this is not about me. Sylvanus, Douglas, Luke Green, whatever you call me. I am merely a conduit. I want to be a voice for a world without voices. A forest which I miss. But more than just that forest, but all forests. And all oceans, mountains, rivers, deserts, lakes, and swamps. All birds in the sky, fish in the sea, and animals on the land. They have no voice, yet they need to be heard. For there is a war raging, and it is not confined to the human world, not merely in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. No, the war, a war against nature, rages all around us every day. I realize I am just one man, but I must do what I can. I must speak my heart and give voice to those without. It is my duty and my responsibility. I thank you again for taking time to hear me out. If you care to hear or read more, again, please visit my blog. Thank you very much. Lucas felt Sylvanus had been truthful, succinct, and had mostly stuck to his message. What would the press do with it? He was anxious to find out, and knew that in the 24-hour, instantaneous media environment they now lived in, he wouldn't have to wait long. As he and Sylvanus were packing up, Beck appeared and said, That's a pretty crazy tale, Green. Yeah, I know, Sylvanus said as he folded chairs. Well, it doesn't matter to me, Beck said. I know we haven't always been on the same page, Green, but what you did the other day was downright heroic. Just doing my job, Sylvanus said. Bullshit, Beck said. Nobody who becomes a mall security guard, especially in a small town like Lincolnton, ever expects to have to apprehend a gunman with a semi-automatic weapon. What you did went above and beyond the call of duty. Well, thank you for saying so, Sylvanus said. Beck was about to leave when Sylvanus said, Sir, I know you probably don't want to hear this, but I'm putting in my two-week notice of leave as of today. Beck stopped. Are you serious? You're going to leave us? I'm sorry, Sylvanus said, but I hope you can understand, after hearing about who I really am, that working at this mall is just not a good fit for me. I suppose so, Beck said, though your actions on Tuesday suggest different. I know, Sylvanus said, but believe it or not, I had come to work that morning to planning to tell you at lunch that I was going to quit. It doesn't matter, Green, Beck said. I can't stop you, but I will say this. If you reconsider... The job's still yours. Thanks, Sylvanus said. I appreciate that. Sir, there is something else I need to tell you. Yeah? Remember that article about the mall? Of course, Beck said. I was the source, Sylvanus said. Beck looked at him with intensity. Could he see through this lie? I figured as much, he finally said. But why didn't you come clean before? Because I wanted to keep my job, Sylvanus said. I'm sorry. It's over, Green, Beck said. And besides, you made it up to me and the mall the other day. Now, I've got to get back to work. Thank you, Sylvanus said. Okay, Green. 
As they drove home that day, Lucas asked Sylvanus, Why did you lie to him? To protect the actual source. Who? I'm not sure, but I'd bet it was the night watchman, Alan Wilcox, Sylvanus said. But it doesn't matter. I figured since I am now in Beck's good graces, and since I'm going to be leaving there soon, there was no risk for me to cover up. Well, Lucas said, normally I'm not much of a fan of cover-ups, but there's always exceptions, I suppose. Yeah, Sylvanus said, if it was Wilcox. I know he's got child support from his first marriage, and his current wife's got some pretty serious health problems that's costing him a lot considering our crappy health insurance, so I know he needs the job. I hope it works out for him, Lucas said. Anyway, I just thought I'd ask since he'd been adamant about being truthful. It's a fair question, Sylvanus said. And even though I feel like I did it for a good reason, to help somebody else, I still don't like doing it. Anyway, don't worry. It's not about to become a habit or anything. You mean Luke Green is dead? Lucas asked. Well, the Luke Green who was born in 1970 and served in the Gulf War is, Sylvanus said. The one who was born in 1920 and traveled through time, though? He's still right here. But I think I'll stick with Sylvanus Douglas. Why? Because it reminds me of my time in the tree, Sylvanus said. I think I've been forgetting that over the past year. I don't want to do that again. Now, can I ask you something? Sure. Why did you lie about how I got out? I thought we went over this, Lucas said. Tell me again. Those mushrooms are not legal, Lucas said. So we could get arrested for admitting we use them? No. So what's the problem? Sylvanus asked. You do want to be taken seriously, right? Of course. Well, a person who's admitted they use drugs has a lot harder time being treated as a credible person, Lucas said. It's not fair considering how many intelligent people have used things like mushrooms. But again, there's a time for disclosure and a time for caution. I guess I'll just have to take your word for it, Sylvanus said. Sylvanus, there is one more thing I need to ask you about, Lucas said. The pictures we have of you. I think we should release them. Why? To give some evidence of the truth of your story to people, Lucas said. Sylvanus didn't say anything. I know you're embarrassed by the pictures, Lucas said. Uh, no, Paul, I'm not. Not anymore. Then what's stopping you? Nothing, I suppose. Look, if you think I should do it, I will. He was quiet after that, and when Lucas looked at him, he was encouraged. Because for the first time since Sylvanus had come out of the tree, he looked at peace. Even if his message ended up distorted by the media, Lucas felt satisfied that he'd helped the tree man convey it, and that during this moment, at least, Sylvanus Douglas had become comfortable in his own skin.